Welcome to the How to Survive a Horror Movie Podcast, where we learn how to survive horror movies and, maybe, how to survive real life. I'm your host, Ryan Stacy, and today we're going to be looking at the movie Scream from 1996. What's your favorite scary movie? Which is my favorite horror movie of all time, actually. So I'm extremely excited to look at this. Heads up, we are going to be spoiling this movie in its entirety, so go watch this movie if you haven't seen it. This is my favorite horror film, so drop what you're doing. Go watch it immediately, if not sooner. Do not listen ahead if you have not seen this movie. So full spoilers, we're going to talk about everything from very early on, so I warned you. My guest today is a frequent face we've seen around here, or voice I guess we've heard around here a few times now, and welcome back, Derek. Well, thanks, Ryan. It's just because you don't have enough friends. It's true, I don't. Derek, how are you doing? Doing well, doing well. I'm excited to, to talk about Scream. There's... A lot of different angles, a lot of different decisions, a lot of good, a lot of bad, a lot of ugly. I'm ready. So we've established before you're not exactly a big horror movie guy, but is this one your favorite? By far. Yeah. Uh, bar none, this movie isn't your prototypical horror movie. If you don't like horror movies, but you want to try one, this is the one to try. Because it's meta, it's clever, and honestly, it's not all that scary. It's not going to get you with jump scares. That's not the point. And I love all of it. This movie was made for a movie lover like me that likes pretty much everything except horror. <laughs> yeah, this movie is much more of a, a thriller whodunit. There's still a decent amount of gore. There's, you know, It's got the slasher movie feel. But it's more of a mystery because you don't know who the killer is right away. And there's tons and tons of suspects. Almost everybody has a motive. It's it's a lot of fun trying to figure out, and I, I will never forget the first time I watched this movie and the feeling it left me with, like, each twist and turn along the way just, like, blew my mind. It's it's so much fun. I can't recommend it enough. Made in uh, 1996 by Wes Craven. You know, we, we talked about his movie Nightmare on Elm Street previously on the podcast, so our first returning director. Yeah, and it's basically kind of a love letter to horror films. They, they mention nearly every horror movie that had ever come out to that point, it feels like, and really, it's just a ton of fun. Um, it's also extremely meta because all the characters in the film have seen horror films. They know their version of the rules. And we also get the character of Randy Meeks, who is the inspiration kind of for the podcast, but also for the award, the Randy Meeks Merit Badge, which we give out at the end of the, the show to whoever did the best job at following the rules. It, it's based off of him. And so it'll be fun to take a look at his character and see if he actually wins the award or not. Does Randy Meeks win the Randy Meeks Merit Badge? Stay tuned. Uh, he's probably my all-time favorite movie character. I love him to death. So I'm excited. This this is phenomenal. I love this movie. For anybody who's new here, uh, what we do with this podcast is we are trying to create a master list of rules for surviving any and all horror movies. Uh, so the list we have so far is on Twitter. It's at HowToHorror, how the number two horror. I update the list every week. So you can go ahead and check there for the current list of rules. And you can follow along with us, and then we'll watch this movie and see if we uh, need to add any new ones. So without further ado, let's get into the plot of Scream. We start with the phone ringing, and we meet a girl named Casey, a high school girl, blonde, played by Drew Barrymore, of all people, which is a huge deal at the time. She was a huge name, and she was kind of marketed as the main character of the movie. 
So this was a big deal, and what happens to her is also a very big deal. <laughs> this opening sequence is simply legendary. Casey answers the phone. It's a guy with a kind of a sexy voice. He's got the wrong number. So she hangs up. The guy calls back immediately. And once again, Casey's like, okay, bye. Third time, the guy calls, and Casey answers it. This time, they, they have a, a long talk. They're kind of flirting with each other a little bit. But wait, I want to talk to you. <laughs> yeah. How are you feeling? What's your favorite scary movie? Is that the one with the guy who has knives for fingers? That's a scary movie. Yeah, that's Roger L. Jackson, and he's so good. And just a great, great voice. Uh, but they talk about, you know, scary movies, Halloween, Nightmare on Elm Street, stuff like that. Chatting along, and then he, the killer, the voice, sexy voice, slips up and says, I want to know who I'm looking at. And Casey catches this. Constant vigilance from here on out. You are in a horror movie. Yep. Worst case scenario, once again, this is a prank by a friend who's just messing with him. Uh, that's the, or that's the best case scenario, sorry. Worst case scenario, you got someone who wishes you harm on the other end of that line. Friendly reminder, uh, pranks that go this far aren't that funny. If you're going to do it, make sure you stop it right there. And if you feel like you're getting pranked, don't take it as a prank until it's been proven. Yeah. Better safe than sorry. Assume this is someone who wishes you harm. So Casey, well, she hears this, and she turns the exterior lights on. She locks the door. She's checking out. She does not take this as a prank. She takes this seriously, so good for her. Uh, she hangs up the line, which I don't know if you should hang up here. I don't, what do you do here, Derek? Do you hang up the phone or try and get more information out of the person? If they're looking at me, I think the first thing that I do is try and get out of sight. Somewhere where they can't see me and they don't know what I'm doing. She was in the kitchen. There were knives. In terms of staying on the phone or not staying on the phone, I think I I can see it either way. Maybe I would hang up just so there's not that added element of them being able to hear what I'm doing over the phone. If I'm grabbing a knife, I don't want them to hear it. If sure. I'm going up the stairs, I don't want them to hear it. If I'm closing a door, I don't want them to hear it. Assuming they call back, which again, maybe they do, maybe they don't, either way, you are taking back some of the control in the situation. Sure. Also, you're alone. And you could hang up and try and call the cops if you can do it before they can tangle up the line again. This is, again, 1996. You can tangle up the line for kids who don't know that. If there's one person on, you can't make any other calls. You can't receive anything. Hang up, dial 911 immediately. Hopefully you get through. At least they're on their way. Maybe Something. That's maybe my thought process. I think the move here is just hang up the phone, try and call the cops, and at least that way you're not distracted by the phone. You can focus on what you're doing, getting weapons, locking the doors, which she does. Uh, he calls back again. She answers. When, I think she should, probably should have been calling the cops here, but she answers. And this time he straight up threatens her to, to gut her. And she, he wants to see what her insides look like. It's really messed up stuff that he says. He calls her blondie. So she knows that he's looking at her. Or she can assume, yeah. unless, of course, the killer knows her. Yes. Uh, so she quickly locks the door. She's looking outside, hangs up the phone. This time the doorbell rings, so she knows someone's there. Now here's something interesting. She calls out, who's there? Who's there? And the next time he calls back, he criticizes her for this. I don't know if that's a problem. Do you? Calling out who's there? Is that is that bad? I mean, I think at best, it's not the killer. Yeah, it could be someone like your parents or something. At worst, they know where you are in the house. And it's like, that's new but, information. Sure. I 
guess that I probably wouldn't do anything at that point. Either one, I would be too freaked out, or two, I would probably already be in a defensible location and let help come to you in this case. Hopefully you've called the cops, but again, we have to assume from here on, I don't think I would call out who's there. I'm kind of on the killer side on this one. I think... There's, there are going to be situations where you shouldn't call out who's there. I don't think this time was necessarily a bad thing. Neutral. You know, there could have been a positive for it. There's no negative for it, I think. Yeah. It, it's neutral. Yeah. She says she's going to call the police, but he calls back, criticizes her for calling it out, and he's like, wow, that's almost like going outside to investigate a strange noise or something. No, okay, those are not comparable. Also, meta. Very meta. But you're right, not comparable, but he's already in her head. He's just playing mind games now. He's already established himself as someone who likes horror. He knows she likes horror, and he's saying, guess what? You're in a horror movie, and I'm the bad guy. Yep. Casey threatens that uh, my boyfriend's going to come beat you up, and the killer goes, oh, his name wouldn't happen to be Steve, would it? And he tells her to check outside, turn on the patio lights, and there's her boyfriend, Steve, tied up, bleeding, and uh, with uh, duct tape over his mouth. And the killer says, I want to play a game. You know, it's like a Saw movie, but, you know, eight years before. Casey kind of panics here, so, but she agrees to play the game. In fairness, she agrees to play the game because the killer says, you play or he dies. Yep. And presumably, if he dies, she's next. Yep. So, I, I actually think that all you can really do at the, this point is... Try. You got to play the game. You got to try it. Um, you got to be thinking of exit strategies, though. Yes. You can play along for as long as possible. When something goes wrong, you got to have a move ready to go. You're playing the game, but what you're actually doing is buying time. Yes, exactly. So she agrees to play the game. Um, and the first question is, who's the killer in Halloween? And he says, this is just a warm-up question. And she gets it right. It's Michael Myers. Then we get to the second question. Who is the killer in Friday the 13th? It's Jason Voorhees. It's Jason Voorhees. Yep. She kind of panics here. She's been on edge. She's panicking, and she does not think about her answer here because she says Jason. That is the wrong answer. Jason is not the killer in Friday the 13th until Friday the 13th Part 2. No, Ryan, you're wrong. I've seen the movie 20 times. Then you should know that Mrs. Voorhees, Jason's mother, was the killer. Jason didn't come around until the sequel. So she panics here. She's going to come out of this fine, but this is going to get Steve killed. And Steve gets gutted just his insides on the outside it's not good and you know we have to give the benefit of the doubt to steve here he didn't really have a chance by our perspective to know that he was in a horror movie he was very likely ambushed yep and tied up and just used as a pawn to uh psychologically terrorize casey yeah we don't have enough information to say for sure right but we have no evidence to suggest Steve should have known he was in a horror movie. I'm guessing he was probably like walking up to the house and just got hit in the head. And, and who knows? Who knows for sure? Uh, nothing we can criticize him for. Nope. Uh, nothing positive we can say either, though. So following the trend where the first death in a horror movie, really hard. Yep. Can't say much here. Uh, so the next question is, which door am I at? And I love this, especially because in retrospect, we know there were two killers. So they had this covered. They had one guy at the front door probably and one guy at the back door. Yep. There's no right way to do this. Yeah, you're screwed here. So I love that. That's great. So she refuses to answer, though, which is stupid. At least make a guess. Refusing to answer is a terrible call. Don't panic, Casey. Rule 10, don't panic. The killer throws a chair through the back door, gets in the house. And now Casey, good for her, she follows rule number five. She locks and loads. She grabs a kitchen knife. 
And she actually already had a knitting needle from the living room. Uh, was it? A, I thought it was a letter opener. Maybe it was a letter opener. Yeah. But she had some sharp, pointy object that she grabbed from the top of the television yep. when they first started the game. Yep. So she was already prepared, but she she upgrades to a kitchen knife. Good for her. She's ready. She's waiting. Killer's in the house. And she decides to sneak out the back door. I like this move a lot. Mm-hmm. You see the killers in the house, you get out of that building. She probably would have been better off just running off into the woods. Mm-hmm. Which she doesn't do. She just kind of hangs out outside of her house. But at least she gets out, which I like. Yeah. I will say, though, the very next part, she sees headlights coming in the distance. Run at the headlights. As fast as you can. Wave your arms. Make noise. Make yourself known. Odds are the killer isn't that much faster than you. Yep. Especially if they have a window or a door or something in between them. And they're wearing a mask. And they're wearing a mask. And she had a chance to see this through the window, yep. so she knows. Yeah, he's wearing a Halloween costume, the ghost face costume. He's not going to be able to see very well. Now, granted, she doesn't know that there's two killers. Sure. But you still have hope in sight. Go for it. Yeah. This is your chance. You are in danger, and this is the gamble to me. This is the gamble to take. Yep. She plays it a little too safe. She doesn't follow Rule 11. Get out. Like, she got out of the building, but she doesn't get out of the immediate vicinity where the danger is. At this point, you just got to get the fuck out. Agreed. And she does not follow this. This is Rule number 11. Get out. Uh, so, but Casey, she sneaks alongside the house, occasionally peeking in, which is terrible. She's given up her position, and she peeks up. There's Ghostface. He turns around and he attacks her. In her defense, she, well, she drops the knife, but she does hit him with the phone and punch him in the face or something. So that's good. Gets yep. him off. She takes off running, but she leaves the knife behind. Don't leave your weapon behind. Rule number seven. And there's really no reason for you to have dropped the knife. Even if you're a little disoriented, you got to... Be aware. Yep. This is life or death. You got one shot. Your grip should be tighter on that knife. So she takes off running, trying to get towards the car, which turns out it's her parents' car. Ghostface jumps out the window and ends up stabbing her. She tries to get away again, but her throat's kind of cut. She can't yell anymore. I think he stabbed her in the neck. Yep. So she can barely speak. Um, she can't get her parents' attention as they go inside the house. Overall terrifying scene, honestly. Really? Outs- outside of decision-making, this is really well done. Yeah, really emotional. Yeah, Especially because it's Drew Barrymore. Yeah. Of all people. But she's dying. She's screwed. I think she knows it too. Mm-hmm. But she does at least take the killer's mask off. So she at least gets some closure. It's something. She knows who it is. But we don't see it. But finally she gets stabbed one last time. And uh, But she still, importantly, she still has the phone on her. So we cut to her parents who go inside the house. They see it's been trashed. Rule number one, know you're in a horror movie. They know they're in a horror movie. Something is terribly wrong. Yep, but I still don't like the decision-making of the dad. He said, go to the neighbors, call the cops. Yep. So he realizes something's horribly wrong. They they hear Casey on the other end of the phone, and then it goes dead. And they know something's wrong. He tells her to get out of the house, drive down the road, go to the neighbors. No, this is terrible. This is rule number 19. Don't split up, gang. Don't split up, gang. If you were in a pair, you do not split up into singles. Now, they don't end up actually splitting up. Because what happens next, but this is terrible call on his part. Lucky for them. <laughs> Lucky for them. Unlucky for Casey, because they he convinces her to leave the house. She goes inside. Casey's hanging from a tree, dead. Yep. And it's a haunting image. And like I said, this overall, this scene, really well done. So going back to Casey, just overall, you know, she figured out she was in a horror movie quickly. She got herself a weapon. She tried to defend herself by locking all the doors of the house. She panicked a little bit, got Steve killed, got... 
if the Gillers make their move a little bit earlier, if she had just played along for, you know, gained herself a few more seconds with that third question. She was smart getting out of the house, but not smart enough to get out of the property and just get away. So she did a lot of good things, but ultimately made enough mistakes to get herself killed. Dropping her knife, just not escaping when she had the chance. And I think that's going to happen in a situation like this. When you've got a targeted attack where they've had time to think about what they're going to do and how they're going to do it, you need to play the game pretty much perfectly and roll some good rolls along the way. Yeah. Um, Unfortunate for Casey, not a whole lot else she could have done. But she did break some rules and ended up dead. Not terrible, but not great. So we cut to our main protagonist, Sydney Prescott. Kind of your average final girl, but she's got like a tragic backstory. She's really great. I love Sydney. Uh, She might be my all-time favorite final girl. Her and Nancy, top two. I would say Sydney. I've seen both movies and stories more compelling. And I think that Sydney has more of a I-don't-give-a-fuck attitude. And I like that. Yeah, she's very ballsy. Occasionally to her detriment. Yes. But makes her very likable. Yes. So she's on her computer. She hears a strange noise, and it's her boyfriend sneaking inside. And I, you know, I don't really criticize people for investigating strange noises inside of their house. I think it's fair enough. And she's got no reason to suspect she's in a horror movie. Right. And it doesn't end up mattering. It's just Billy. I mean, <laughs> it should matter a little bit more, apparently. But yeah, it's fine. It's just Billy. It's just Psycho Billy. Uh, her boyfriend, Billy, who's kind of a greasy-looking guy. Like He's got really greasy 90s hair. Yeah, he looks like he's a member of the Outsiders. He looks like a killer from, like, off the bat. He, he looks like a psycho killer. Sounds like a psycho killer. Yeah, he's he's, he's, he's charismatic. He's charming in a Ted Bundy kind of way. Huh. <laughs> so he's kind of the obvious suspect the whole movie. It's like, it's so clearly him that it's not him. That's what you're supposed to think with Billy. Turns out it is him. <laughs> at least half. Uh, he's one of the killers. So that, that'll be interesting to, to pay attention to all the way through this. But her dad comes in because he hears the noise. She she squeals when Billy, you know, she gets startled when Billy comes in. So Billy hides quick, and it's established that if Sydney opens her closet, you can't get into her room because it blocks her main door from getting open. Horrible design flaw. Uh, yes and no. Great design flaw. I want this in all of my houses that I ever have. This is brilliant. I mean, I guess from a pure defensive defensive standpoint, this is great. But as a homeowner, I hate this. Yeah. Uh, no, I love this. I'm building all of my houses this way. Any home I ever have, I will design specifically with this in mind. I love this. Her dad's going out of town to stay at this hotel, yada, yada. Hilton at the airport. Hilton at the airport. He leaves, and then Sydney and Billy, they talk about some of their intimacy issues, which we don't get into great detail of why, and that'll become more clear over the course of the film. But Billy wants to get laid and sitting doesn't want to do it but they do some making out then he leaves and overall good guy billy i mean he made slight move and she said nah and respected it he was good with that yeah i mean he he comes off as a little bit creepy no it's not even creepy it's just like he's like oh i'm not trying to rush you you're trying to rush her but he's at least respectful of her boundaries. At this point, he makes the minimum standard of being a decent human being. Yeah. The absolute bare minimum. Yeah, you meet the minimum. So that's something, I guess. So next morning, we go to high school. There's cops or reporters everywhere. Sydney sees uh, Gail Weathers, who's played by Courtney Cox, uh, a local reporter, kind of a vicious reporter, uh, reporting a story. And she has no idea what's going on, but we run into Sydney's best friend, Tatum, kind of the blonde best friend. And basically, Tatum bills her in about the murders. So the whole town knows about these murders now. So at this point, we're going to establish rule number one for everybody. 
everybody should know they're in a horror movie because there's been two murders. The killer is still on the loose. They don't know who did it or why or anything. So everybody should be on their guard. And they were very statement kills either. This isn't just someone got stabbed, someone got shot in a robbery. This was we hung a person from a tree outside a house and left the parents alive. We didn't steal anything. The intestines of both people were on the outside of their bodies. Everyone should know they're in a horror movie. There are zero excuses. Yep. And this kicks off rule number two as well, constant vigilance. Everybody needs to be aware. Now you need to be watching. You need to be thinking. You need to be wary. Yep. There, there are no excuses for anybody at this point. So what they're doing is the police come in and they're interrogating all the students. They're, you know, just, they, they have no leads. So they're just questioning all the students. Sydney gets brought in and we're introduced to Sheriff Burke, who, fun fact, he played a deputy in Nightmare on Elm Street. Hmm. Uh, he was a terrible deputy, too. Now he's a sheriff. We meet Deputy Dewey, who's kind of a, a doofy kind of cop who's not great at his job. Also Tatum's older brother. Yeah, Tatum's older brother. And then we meet Principal Hembury, principal of the school, played by Fonzie. Hey. Hey. They bring in Sydney to ask a couple of questions. And then at lunchtime, Sydney and Billy and Tatum are all at lunch with Tatum's boyfriend, Stu, who's played by Matthew Lillard, a.k.a. Shaggy from the Scooby-Doo movie. Brilliant casting. He's amazing in this film. Yeah. He's overly eccentric. Just kind of a goofy high school guy. He, you, you get the vibe. He reminds me of a few of my friends from high school. And, uh, yeah. Has that uh, red button that tells you not to say stuff. He doesn't have that button quite developed yet. Kind of that obnoxious douchey kid we all knew in high school. But if you knew him well, you could be good friends with him. Yep. Maybe but not. He's kind of a tool. Yeah. And then we also have Randy, who's uh, Randy Meeks, my hero, my personal hero. And the guy who knows all the rules about horror movies. He works at a video store. He he watches horror movies on repeat, like myself. This guy is awesome. And they're all talking about the killers, yada yada. They kind of set up Stu used to date Casey, so we gave him a little bit of a motive. Uh, kind of set up that Tatum might have a motive for being like jealous about Casey or something. I don't know. We're just giving people like little motives, just just set up. Everybody's a suspect, as Randy says. Yes. Cindy gets dropped off on the school bus back at her house. She is very smart. She makes plans to stay with Tatum while her father's out of town. She doesn't want to be by herself in this house while the killer's on the loose. Tatum's at practice. I don't think we ever find out what sport it is. No. Uh, but Tatum's like, yeah, I'll pick you up after practice gets done. So good for Sydney. She goes into her house. She locks the doors. All good stuff. Then we get a, a news story. We, we get Gail Weathers, Courtney Cox on the news again. And we finally get some backstory. One year ago almost, Sydney's mother, Marine, was raped and murdered. And it was this huge, huge deal. This is kind of giving everybody flashbacks to that brutal murder. So Sydney takes a nap and wakes up. It's it's nighttime now. She gets a phone call from Tatum. Uh, practice run late. She's on her way. She's going to stop at the movie store, pick up some movies. But she's on her way to come pick up Sydney. Another phone call. It's the, the killer. Sexy voice. Hello. Hello, Sydney. He, he's asking, what's your favorite scary movie? And Sydney thinks it's Randy just messing with her. And they talk about scary movies. Sydney does not like them because of... <laughs> one of my well, one of the rules we talked about for Texas Chainsaw, don't run upstairs. She thinks that, that that happens way too often, and that's great. You're supposed to run out the back door, not up the stairs. Yep, and Cindy thinks they're insulting because there's no reason for anybody to run up the stairs. And that's going to come into play, <laughs> and I love it. Killer says he's not Randy, and he's actually out on Cindy's front porch. Now, I think this is probably the biggest criticism we can level at Cindy in this whole movie, because this is ballsy. I can appreciate it, but it is not smart. Without grabbing a weapon, she unlocks the front door and goes out on the porch. Calling your bluff, man. Uh, she's talking to him. She's like, bluff called. And she 
he, he she's like, what am I doing right now? And she's picking her nose and he can't answer, even though he says he can see her. So, I mean, yes, bluff called. So she goes back in the house and locks the door. He was in the house already hiding in the closet. He bursts out and attacks her. Well, and one thing, he got angry that she wasn't playing his game. Yeah. She was out on the porch and she said, what am I doing right now? And he said, listen, you little bitch. Yep. I'm going to gut you if you do uh, something like I'm this. I'm going to kill you just like I killed your mother. And now... It's serious. Yeah, there's no excuse. You already knew you were in a horror movie, but now you know you're the next victim. Yeah, you're either the next victim or the main character, and your choices here are going to decide what that is. Ghostface attacks, and they fight, and she could have easily gotten killed here. Easy. Ghostface kind of like takes his time to savor the moment, and she hits him. Uh, knocks him off her, tries to go out the front door. She locked it. Whoops. So she can't go out the front door. She has no <laughs> choice but to run up the stairs. Exactly what she said not to do. Uh, and this time it's totally justified. You have a split second to make your call. And she it's knew fine. that And she knew that she had already locked the back door yep. and the windows were all shut. Yep. She locked herself in with the killer by accident. So by following the rules 95% of the way, you ended up putting yourself in a worse off situation. But this is kind of like wearing a seatbelt in a car. Like, every once in a while, there's a freak accident where the seatbelt might end up doing more harm than good. But that doesn't mean you don't wear the seatbelt, so... If we're being results-oriented, she made the wrong call. But we can't do that. We can't be results-oriented here. We have to be like, what is the proper move with the information we have? She made the right call by locking herself in. Yes. She had no way to know the killer was already in the house. Bad, bad luck. Bad luck. She runs upstairs, and she uses her design of her bedroom to... Uh, she locks the door and then braces it with the closet door so Ghostface cannot get in the room. It's great. I love this. Yes. And then she uses... Uh, she figures out that her, the phone lines have been cut, but she uses her computer to dial 911. I didn't know this was a thing. Nope. I was born in 93. Movie happened in 96. I... Nope. Yep. I've never heard of this before, but either way, in this universe, it exists. It's smart. The killer vanishes, and Billy appears at her window and climbs in. And he comforts her. It's okay. It's okay. But he has a cell phone. And it falls out of his pocket. So Sydney's suspicious. And, you know, for, for youngins out there, cell phones weren't nearly as common in 1996. No. They were just beginning to be a thing, really. So Sydney runs out of the room, goes downstairs. She thinks Billy's the killer. And then runs out the front door. Deputy Dewey is there. Now, I'm going to say, Sydney, right call. Dude appeared at your window, and you felt comfort for a second because it's a familiar face. And also... The guy, the killer, was just at your door. Yeah. The timing didn't quite line up because Ghostface hadn't disappeared for long. Yep. There would have been no way he could have gotten to the roof that quickly. But she saw the cell phone and said, you know what? I'm not dying here like this today. Yep. Out the door. Love the move. Trust no one. It's, it's safe. It's just being safe. Yes. She probably should have been a little more cautious when running down the stairs because if Billy's not the killer, the killer could still be in the house. It's a tough call. It's a tough spot that she's in. It ends up working out for her here, but... Yeah. Also, who the hell holds a mask up? Look what I found! <laughs> Love Dewey. <laughs> Meta. Uh, that Dewey and Sydney scare each other, but Sydney is now safe. Billy gets arrested by Dewey. Tatum arrives, and they all go to the police station. Gail and her cameraman, Kenny, arrive a little too late. They try and get a word out of Tatum, but she basically tells her to go to hell. Cameraman Kenny's just kind of an overweight cameraman guy. Not much else to his character. Okay, so we cut to the police station. Dewey and Sydney cannot track down Sydney's father. He never checked in at his hotel. Billy is questioned by the sheriff. He maintains he's innocent. He says everybody has cell phones, but they're going to hold on to him until they can get they can look up his phone records. See if the calls were, came from his phone. Uh, so he gets put in jail. 
Gail and Kenny get to the police station. They're trying to get in to get a statement, but they can't get in. So far by the police, by the way. Thank you. You have done your jobs. Yeah. Police are the, Most of the police are pretty competent in this movie. There's one in particular who's not. We'll get to him. Dewey. Dewey. <laughs> Tatum, Sydney, and Dewey, they decide to leave. Uh, the police realize they can't trace the costume. And they sell it everywhere. But Gail and Kenny find Sydney in the alley, and they try and like, get a statement out of her. And basically what it turns out is the case is Gail is writing a book that's coming out soon about uh, her mother's murder. It's She took the side of the person who was arrested for the murder, maintaining this guy named Cotton Weary, who's played by Liev Schreiber, who will come back in the later movies. And she maintains that Cotton was framed and he's innocent, and she kind of dragged Sidney's name through the mud when reporting on it and writing this book. Which I'm not okay with, by the way, Gail Weathers... Don't don't be like that. She's a kid, and misidentifying witnesses isn't all that uncommon. I don't think that necessarily means that you can fault somebody for it. Yeah, because it turns out, Sid, you know, Gail's right. Gail's right about everything mm-hmm. in her defense. The Cotton is innocent. He didn't do it. Sidney misidentified him. Cotton was framed. Yeah, Gail, is, you're right, but he was a little bit attacked. Her mom just got brutally murdered. Right. But on the flip side, Cotton was going to get gassed. That he uh, got the death penalty. Oh, yeah, you keep fighting, especially yeah. if you are positive that you're right or you have a great feeling that you're right. Pursue so, it. I guess if to save a man's life, if you have to drag a 17-year-old through the mud to save a man's life, fine. But we don't have to be happy about the situation. This is just bad news all around. Yep. Gail, stupidly, is trying to get a statement from Sydney. I don't know what she expected to happen because Sydney just punches her right in the face. Good right hook. Yep. Very satisfying. So Sydney leaves with Tatum and Dewey, and she goes to stay with them for the night. But they get a phone call at the, their house, and it's the killer. And he's like, you got the wrong guy again, Sydney." How does it feel, putting the wrong guy in prison? Terrifying, by the way. Yep. That would be, oh, that's a bad night. Yep. So the killer hangs up. We get a little bit more details about Cotton Weary. Billy gets released from prison because the calls did not come from his phone. So it wasn't from Billy's cell phone. Dewey and Tatum and Sydney, they all go to school. There's a bunch of reporters still here. and They're like, how does it feel to be almost butchered? The people have a right to know. It's like, fuck off. For real. Of course, it's the over-the-top cinematic reporters, but there's always a hint of truth in yep. these kind of portrayals. Yep. Again, this movie's meta. It's fun. Gail thinks Cotton uh, had sex with Maureen Prescott. That was the big thing. Bloody coat was found in his car that she thinks was planted there. Gail and Sydney talk a little bit about this, and Sydney's like, no, you're wrong. Uh, Cotton did it, yada, yada. Gail's like, kind of pieces the everything together, and she realizes the murders are connected. Somehow, the death of Sydney's mother and these most more recent murders are connected. Uh, so at school, you know, some of the kids are running around dressed as Ghostface, kind of being dicks. Sydney doesn't like this. She runs into Billy, and Billy is a massive prick here. Kind of bringing up, you know, you just got to get over your mom and have sex with me kind of attitude. Yeah, he frames it as these intimacy issues and you need to move on. I mean, my parents got divorced, I've moved on, what's going on? Even though we know you're the killer eventually, which is below the uh, bar to be an okay human being, you're you're now below that bar, you need to stop. Slow your roll, Billy. Yeah, Billy tries to compare it to like, yeah, my parents got divorced and I got over it. My mom left town, yeah, it's fine. And Sydney just gets rightfully pissed off and leaves, goes yeah. to the bathroom. So we get a little bit of a, a motive for Principal Hembry because he is dealing with the students who are running around dressed as Ghostface, and 
basically holding a very sharp scissors up to them and like kind of like threatening them. And he says he's going to expel them. And he says, you guys deserve to get cut up into little pieces and your generation, your entire generation makes me sick. So a little bit of like, oh, is the principal the killer? Yeah. Who done it? Did Fonzie kill him? Hey. Uh, so Sydney's in the bathroom. She hears some girls shit talking her, uh, suggesting that Sydney's the killer. And they're talking about how her mom was a slut and all this horrible, horrible stuff. You just feel so bad for Sydney here. Yeah. It's brutal. Great character development, which, again, we didn't get a ton of in Halloween, and you didn't get a ton of in Texas Chainsaw. You get a little bit of that exposition, but I genuinely feel for Sydney. Yeah. And I'm rooting for her as a character that things get better. She's a great character. Awesome protagonist. The killer turns out he's in the bathroom and attacks her, but she escapes by doing a nice slide maneuver and yeah. gets away. She pays attention. She notices something weird is going on. Constant vigilance. She realizes the killer's in the stall without seeing him. She yep. just pieces it together. It's pretty good. Pretty yep. good on Sydney. Yep. And he was whispering her name into the bathroom. I think... You hear your name whispered one time. I don't care if you think you're hearing something. You know you're in a horror movie and you know you're on edge. Get out of the bathroom. Don't give them time to do anything else from there. Especially if you've already been attacked once by the killer. It's like, nope, I'm good. I'm out of here. Yeah. By the way, these killers, pretty inept. Yeah, they're pretty inept. They're not great. It just kind of adds. It makes it a little funnier in hindsight. Yeah. Again, meta. So Gail tries to get some info out of Dewey by flirting with him. Bizarre and weird. And uncomfortable. Yeah. Classes get suspended because of the attack. Uh, now there's a 9 o'clock curfew on the entire town. But classes are canceled. Police still can't find Cindy's dad. He's now a suspect. Stu decides to throw a party at his house. Because, of course. And Cindy kind of thinks it's a bad idea. But Tatum suggests that there's safety numbers. So Cindy agrees to go to the party. This is terrible. This is so bad. I mean, I kind of get the idea of safety numbers. I'll go to one place. But throwing a party... With a murderer on the loose, this is terrible. And going to this party is stupid. Yeah, and I'm actually going to take a second to say the police failed here too. Because clearly Sydney is targeted. Why would you let her do anything? Yeah, yeah, you know, that's a good point. And I hadn't thought about that. Sydney, you've been actually attacked twice. twice. So this is a minor criticism of her. I'm not going to overlook it in terms of survival as your primary motive here. But again, like you said, there's kind of this idea of safety in numbers. For real. Sydney should be in protective custody. Yep. The police need to do their damn job. Rule number three, they don't. Sydney should be in protective custody now, period. Yes. Incompetence on the police's part. I didn't. I had never thought about that. Terrible. But then just going to this party. Like, why? Sydney, trust your initial instinct. This is a terrible idea. You don't know who the killer is. You don't know how big this party's going to be. The killer could show up. The killer could be hosting the goddamn party. And just remember, and this is true, in these situations, if you're targeted, oftentimes you know who it is. The killer knows the victim. The victim knew the killer. There's this level of comfort. They lull you into a false sense of security, and that's what happens. Don't fall for that. This is a horror movie. There's no excuses. Yeah. Sydney, go to the police station, demand protective custody. I'm not going to hold that too much against her because she's a high schooler and she wouldn't know that necessarily. She could do that. This is more on the police, but going to the party is a bad call. Yes, it's a very bad call. On everybody's part. Every single person who goes to this party is an idiot. Yes. This is terrible. Principal Hembry hears a knock on his office door. There's no one there. Could just be kids playing a prank. He's the principal. It happens again. Again, nobody there. And he goes out in the office area and kind of looks around. I mean, I get the impulse. Maybe bring a pair of scissors with you. But that kind of looks bad if you're walking around with a pair of scissors like a weapon in the middle of a school. Regardless, he, he looked around and all he finds is the janitor. 
who's dressed exactly like Freddy Krueger from A Nightmare on Elm Street, played by Wes Craven. Name is Fred. Name Fred. I love it. Uh, he goes back to his office. He is suspicious. He's rightfully on his guard here. Constant vigilance. Yep. He checks the closet out. There's nobody inside. He checks the hallway again. You know, he's he's on edge. Instincts are correct. But he doesn't realize Ghostface is behind his office door. And he exhales slowly. I'm fine. Constant vigilance, by the way. Not just vigilance for a little while until you think you're good. Yep. Closes the door and gets stabbed to death by the killer. So, Principal Hembry, he knew he was in a horror movie. He, he His instincts were on the money. He just didn't fully commit to trusting his instincts and didn't keep his vigilance. He was not constantly vigilant. Violation of rule number two. And I think that's about all we have for Hembry. Yep, not a, not a whole lot else to say. Yep. Uh, Sydney and Tatum talk, and Tatum suggests that Cotton might be innocent and that the rumors about Sydney's mom kind of sleeping around with a lot of a lot of guys in town, They've there's more than just Cotton. These rumors have been going on for a while, and they're pretty much believed by everybody. So that's an awkward talk, but the killer's watching them through the woods. Because oh, why not? Because why not? It's hilarious. So Randy's over at the video store working, and Stu comes to talk to him, and they notice Billy's hanging out in the horror movie section. And Randy thinks Billy's the killer. He's got a, a motive. They talk about his motive, because Sydney might not have sex with him. That's why he's doing this. Right on the money. Right on the money. Maybe not the true motive, but he's he's close. He's he's right about who did it. He's, he's right about the most important fact here. The why isn't as important as the who in a whodunit. Yeah. Uh, this is not a why done it. Yes. And Randy also wants to go out with Sydney, so he might have like, hey, if I get rid of Billy, she'll go out with me, kind of idea. And this is where we really start to understand Randy Meeks a little bit more clearly. He works in this movie store, he understands the lore, he's like, this is basically the plot of Prom Night. Yep. If the police would just watch Prom Night, they would understand what's going on. You look at motives, and you follow the rules. Number one rule everybody's a suspect. Everybody just stares at him, and Stu's like, eh, he's high, don't, don't listen to him. <laughs> Stu suggests that uh, Sydney's father, Neil, is the killer. And Randy thinks Neil is already dead, he's a red herring. Uh, Billy shows up and threatens Randy, and he's like, oh, maybe you're the killer. And Randy's like, yeah, yeah absolutely, I'm definitely the killer, I'm the primary suspect, absolutely. I would, I would be. Yeah, I know I, I would well, be. Well, they'll be the first to admit it, just to try and get Billy to leave him alone. <laughs> And he says, uh, it's the millennium. Motives are incidental. I don't need a motive. I love Randy. That's funny also because those words end up getting thrown at Sydney later in the movie as well because, oh, millennia. Yeah, motives are incidental. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> Millie steals that. Doesn't even credit Randy with it. So the town kind of shuts down due to the curfew. Sydney and Tatum, they go grocery shopping and the killer follows them inside. <laughs> Just wandering to the grocery store. Because why not? Uh, Dewey and the sheriff talk. They realized that they've learned that the calls came from Sydney's father's phone. So they think Sydney's father is the, the killer. Especially because the, the anniversary of the, the mother's death, Sydney's mother's death, is the next day. And oh. also he never checked in at the Hilton at the airport yep. for his business trip. So Dewey is ordered to keep an eye on Sydney and not let her out of his sight. Guess what, Dewey? Do your job. Yep. Rule number three, do your job. Dewey does not do this at all in any way, shape, or form. Terrible, terrible, terrible. So Dewey drives Sydney and Tatum to Stu's party. They get driven to this party by a goddamn cop. Come on. Kenny and Gail, they follow him to this party for some reason. I don't really know why. I guess to follow Sydney because she's kind of the story here. It's a little thin. And a little creepy. A little creepy. Uh, it's a big party. Randy and Stu are both there. A bunch of red shirts that we don't care about. Yep. Background extras. 
Gale and Kenny kind of park nearby, and they don't want to get spotted, but Dewey meets up with them, like, instantly. Uh, he's keeping an eye on things, allegedly. Dewey decides he wants to go check out the party. Okay, cool. Gale goes with. Kenny stays in the car, but he slips her a camera. Inside, they're watching Halloween. Dewey and Gale arrive, and Dewey is so bad, because he sees all these kids drinking, and he's like, oh, you're underage, son. Takes the beer, and he's like, ah, you know what? Have a good time. Gives him the beer back. He's like, what are you doing, Dewey? Bust up this party, send all these kids home, and so they're not having a giant party while there's a killer on the loose. What? Didn't he even say something like, I'm just kidding, and gives, yep. him, gives him his beer back? Have a good time. Like, what? Do your damn job, Dewey. This is all your fault. This I, is bad. I hope you know this, Dewey. Yeah, this is largely your responsibility, Dewey. This is terrible. Gale plants the camera near the TV. Stu asks Tatum to go get him a beer. So Tatum leaves and goes out to the garage to get some beer. So the door kind of slowly closes on her, and she discovers she's locked in the garage. So she tries to, she can't get anybody's attention. So she just opens the garage door, garage door plans to go out uh, and around back to the front door. But the garage door closes on her, and she turns around, ghost faces in the garage with her. Now, she just thinks it's Randy fucking around, and goes up to her, it's like, oh, are we playing psycho killer? Can I be the helpless victim? Well, and because, again, there were people running around with these costumes on at school, and I'm pretty sure both of those kids were at the party, actually. Both of those kids were at the party. So, they're, this tactless behavior isn't above this particular group of friends so maybe there should be an unwritten rule here have better friends have better friends but i'm kind of okay with it so far but constant vigilance know you're in a horror movie don't push your luck yeah i don't know what else to say to tatum right now because she's all but grinding him at one point in this scene to be fair there's nowhere else for her to go right now so you flirt with the potential killer I mean, I, I don't know. This is weird. This is a weird situation. She's got nowhere else to go. She doesn't have another option here besides maybe just, like, hold on to a bottle and, and just be ready to use it as a weapon. Maybe it's just a friend messing around. Maybe it's a killer. Just be ready. So, you know, get a weapon. But what ends up happening is the killer pulls out a knife and slices her arm. Now she knows. And she fights. She hits him in the face with a refrigerator door and is throwing bottles at him. Flips, uses, like, judo and flips him over and is doing everything right. She's the perfect opportunity to crush this guy's throat and survive the movie. She's doing so well, but she doesn't double tap. She doesn't finish him off. Instead, she decides to climb out through the kitty door of the garage. Tatum, you were doing so well. You had this. There's no excuses from then on. There was even broken glass and broken bottles. You dropped a couple of them. Yep. And to even go back, she didn't aim for the killer's face first. She assumed it was a guy and aimed for where the sun don't shine, and she hit. We're going to establish a new rule here, and this will be coming to play later. It's more, it's not about what anybody did wrong here. I mentioned this in the Friday the 13th podcast about fighting dirty, and Alice didn't really fight dirty in that movie. And I probably should have put it as a rule in Friday the 13th, but now I'm going to make it rule number 20, fight dirty. Tatum definitely does this here. Sydney's going to do it later. The girls in this movie definitely fight dirty. Girls, guys, everybody should fight dirty when your life is in line. There's no such thing as honor when you're fighting for your life. Yep. If you're fighting for honor, that's one thing, but you're fighting for your life. Everything is a potential advantage. Yep. Aim for the crotch. Aim aim for for the the eyes. Eyes. Nose. uh, Wounded areas. Stab wounds. Everything is fair game. There's a Game of Thrones scene. I'm not going to spoil anything, but there's two guys fighting, and one of them uses a cheap trick to win, and they accuse him of having no honor. You, sir, do not fight with honor. And he responds, 
No, but he did. Yeah, he wins the duel and kills the, the guy who fought with honor. Uh, and he wins the duel and gets away because he fought without honor. I, I don't believe in honor kind of thing. There, there, there's no honor in getting killed here. <laughs> honor is something that those in power made up so that the, the smart uh, lower people wouldn't overthrow them. Honor is complete bullshit. And to go one step further, there's actually a sort of philosophical mindset. It came from Thomas Hobbes. If you ever heard of the comic strip Calvin and Hobbes, Hobbes the Tiger is named after uh, Thomas Hobbes the philosopher who has this idea of the original state of nature where humans are the only species that can all best each other in different ways where if one is strong, another might be smart, another might be cunning, another might use dirty tricks because it's all about getting the upper hand. If you're fighting against a killer... Keep in mind, you can overcome, but it might not be honorable. And who cares? And who cares? You're alive. Yes. That's what matters. So, rule number 20, fight dirty. Doesn't make for a great epic scene, because you can really set the stage for a final match between an antagonist and a protagonist, but from a survival standpoint, I'm going to go the Indiana Jones route here. Exactly what I was thinking. You, You bring a gun to a sword fight. Yes. And use it. Or a bomb to a gunfight. Yeah, fight dirty. Fight dirty. I'm a huge proponent of fighting dirty when your life is on the line. Yeah, go for the weak spots. Uh, so, yeah, to continue on about Tatum, she did fight dirty. I love it. She went for the balls. Great. She was doing so well. Uh, she, she was doing everything right, and then she just decides to go through this garage door. Rule number six. Rule number six, double tap. Once you get the killer on the ground, you finish him off. Had she done that, she wouldn't have needed to go through the garage door. That's what Tatum... You probably live. There's one more killer to deal with, but hey, you took one of them out. She had the opportunity, and she did not take it. But apart from that, Tatum was pretty good. Did we even say what happened to her? Uh, yeah, so the garage door goes up and crushes her head. Because she got stuck crawling through the kitty door. Yep. Yep, so she's stuck. She gets crushed. It's a great kill. It's a stupid moment. Yes. And it shouldn't have happened. But it did. Here we are. <sighs> Moving on, who's left? Couple red shirts, couple of main characters... Uh, so the killer rejoins the party, and some of the people are starting to leave. The party's starting to break up. Sydney wants to go home, but she can't find Tatum. Billy arrives, and Stu's like, hey, you guys can go up to my my parents' room and talk or whatever, being super subtle. Randy's kind of pissed that Billy's here because they might get back together, and Randy wants Sydney, but whatever. Kenny's back in the news van watching the camera. Uh, Gail rejoins him, and they realize there's a 30-second delay on uh, the camera because Gail was still on screen. But she managed to walk to the house, so there's there's about a 30-second delay. Again, kids, this is 1996. Yep. There's no such thing as a Facebook Live. There's no such thing as live streaming. This is the best they had at the time. And, and to be fair, you know, a lot of equipment these days will still have, you know, a couple-second delay. Billy and Sydney talk, and then yada, 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 and they say, it's all one big movie. Super double meta. Yeah. Uh, they how, broke 16 walls. How many layers can we have to this onion? <laughs> They kiss, and Sydney says she wants to have sex, and they do. And this is big, because one of the rules, which we're about to get to, is that's such a big thing, is you can't have sex in a horror movie, or you'll die. Sydney lives. She has sex with the killer, and lives. That's huge. And while this is all happening, by the way, we have Randy downstairs explaining the rules. Yep. And he says, you know, the number one, one rule to survive a horror movie is don't have sex. You can't have sex. And rule number two, don't drink or do drugs. Well, they're drinking. <laughs> and probably... Maybe. There's no evidence they were doing drugs, but they're all drunk. Either way, they were all drunk. So let's, let's talk about these rules here. 
because I disagree with these rules, mostly. This all comes back to rule number two, constant vigilance. And it's not the sex, it's not the drinking, it's not the drugs that are the problem here. It's not paying attention when you're in a dangerous situation. You get distracted by these other things. It doesn't have to necessarily be those. It could be food. It could just be, oh, I'm fishing. It could be anything. It's just letting yourself get distracted by something. And it makes you an easy target for the killer. Yeah. That's all it is. So Principal Hembry checks the closet and doesn't check behind the door. Yep. Constant vigilance. Yep. It's, it's all rule number two. The, the sex, the drinking, the drugs, that's all just incidental. But at least he's somewhat prepared. Yep. He's probably the only person in this universe who has come up with a set of rules to survive. He's at least thought about it. He's thought about the potential of ending up in a horror movie himself. Yep. And that, honestly, if you can get through rule number one quicker than everyone else, that often can lead to survival. Yep. At least I would think. And it would also, again, in a more indirect way, lead to rule number two as well. Because you are being vigilant by not partaking in distractions. It's more about things that yep. you should do rather than things you shouldn't do. But I still love where Randy is coming from here. Yes. This is amazing. Too. This is an inspirational speech he gives. I have copied this speech and given it many times. But Randy is drinking here, and he knows he's in a horror movie. So, Randy, not following your own rules there, bud. Funny, funny. Uh, and then the third rule he says is, don't be, say, you'll be right back. Because you won't be back. You know, again, yes. I mean, that's not what the real rule is. You're just kind of setting yourself up. But, I mean, you can say that as much as you want. And 99 times out of 100, you'll be back just fine. But everybody's going to remember the one time where somebody said, I'll be right back. And they didn't come back because they got killed. It's not That isn't the actual rule. It's just, yeah. Yeah, and in a way, that rule is don't split up, gang. Yeah, yeah. It, it comes down to more than that. Don't split up, gang. Rule number 19. Let's split up and look for clues. When you say, I'll be right back, you're splitting up, going off on your own, presumably. And that just makes you an easy target. So that, that's that's more what the rule is. It's just don't split up. Yep. When right after he says the I'll be right back thing, Stu says, hey, I'm getting another beer. Want one? I'll be right back. <laughs> Spoilers. He'll be back. So Gail and Kenny are watching all of this on their camera, and Dewey shows up, and he got a report of a car being parked in the bushes down the road, and he wants to go check it out, and he asks Gail to go with him on kind of like a date, to go romantic uh, walk in the moonlight to go find this car. No, Dewey. You get in your car, you drive down there, and you check it out right away. You don't bring Gail with. Do your damn job, Dewey. This is not a date. There's a killer on the loose, Stewie. There might be a killer on their way to the party. There might be in the party. Spoiler alert. They're in the party. Oh, my God. Uh, They decide to walk. They don't even drive. It's terrible. And by the way, Gail, what are you doing? Yeah, Gail, what are you doing here? You're here to find a killer. You're here to do everything other than what you are now doing. Just taking a nice leisurely stroll down Midnight Lane in the middle of a horror movie. This is bad on both adults. You need to have competent adults in situations like this. I mean, competent children, too. But adults are supposed to be. There's this expectancy that they've got better sense than to just this. do this. this. This is terrible. You know, Gail's job here, she's a reporter. She's looking for a story, right? And I can understand why she would want to go check out this car. There, There's a potential story there. Fine. But I don't know. I'm going to put more of the blame on Dewey. But Gail, come on. This is, this is, insist on driving. Oh, undoubtedly. Dewey's decision-making is compounding here. It's poor decision after poor decision after poor decision. You let there be a party. You let Sydney go off on her own. You turn this into your own personal pickup opportunity of a reporter. And now you're not just going to take your car, bring a giant light source slash getaway with you. This is bad. This is all bad. And, Gail, you are playing right into it as well. You are not helping the situation. Yeah, you are enabling Dewey. 
And now, Kenny, again, you're not doing anything, and by inaction, it's still bad, but at least you're not as bad as the other yeah, two. Yeah, Kenny screwed up here, too. He should be like, why are you leaving? I mean, shouldn't you be watching the party? That's what he should be saying. But this is, most of the blame can fall on Dewey, Dewey. and more of it can fall on Gale than Kenny. Yes. So, so more people leave the party. Billy and Sydney are still having sex. Randy gets a phone call that the principal was found dead hanging from uh, the field goalpost at the football field. And the rest of the red shirts at this party all leave. They're drunk, and they take off driving down the road. Rule number four, don't be a menace. Don't drink and drive, guys. It's bad. Yes. It's all bad. Kenny watches them leave. He doesn't try and stop them either. It's not great, Kenny. Gail and Dewey are walking down the road, and they're flirting, and then they almost get hit and killed by these cars, these drunk drivers. Uh, Dewey does manage to push Gail out of the way, and they fall down a hill, and they start kissing, but then they notice the car is right next to them, and it's Sydney's father's car. He's here. What is he doing here? Now they know shit's shit's real, even though somehow they didn't know it before. Now it's more real. We're going to ramp up the tension. It's almost like there's this tolerance where if your back hurts all the time, you can kind of get distracted from that back pain. You know, it's not debilitating. So you get used to that tension and you learn to live with it. And then you need something else to kind of twist on your arm again or make the corkscrew tighter and you're going to feel that tension again and it makes it more serious. But no, that's not how it should be. This is not a normal feeling. This is not a normal situation. Nope. It, the the proverbial noose is already around your neck. It You don't wait until someone's about to kick the stool out from under you to realize that this is, oh, wow, this, this is real. Yeah. They're that dog meme where you're sitting in the fire, that uh, sitting in a house that's burning down, saying, this is fine. And then the roof collapsed. Like, oh, no, this isn't fine. It was never fine. Nope. So they run back. Uh, Sydney and Billy are getting dressed. Sydney makes good comments about how it'd be funny if Billy was the killer and he used his one phone call to call her from jail and throw her off the scent. Billy gets like, all serious. What do I have to do to prove to you I'm not a killer? And the door opens. The killer walks in and allegedly stabs Billy. Clever move. It's a good move. This this caught me off guard when I first watched this movie big time. It had me fooled. I thought, I thought Billy was dead. Yep. So Billy is allegedly killed here, but he's actually not. So we won't talk about him here. Sydney manages to escape the room. And this is actually something you point out, which is very clever. Sydney locks the killer in a room and runs for the stairs. And somehow the killer gets in front of her and blocks the stairs. The killer, this killer is Stu. This is his house. He knows his house. That's how he managed to do that. And that's how he manages to do it so quickly. I don't expect Sydney to know this. This is obviously armchair quarterbacking it. Yep. But still, clever nod. I like it. Yep. Sydney does everything right here. She tries to get downstairs, can't, has to just find another way, locks herself in like an attic. Yep, blocks the door with a surfboard. Yep, the killer's coming in. She's trying. She's screaming for help, trying to get Kenny's attention. I think he's asleep at this point. Constant vigilance, Kenny. And again, she didn't first try to open a window. I wish she would have done this a little quicker. Ultimately, we do get there, though. She opens a window. She climbs out onto the roof. Now, I don't know how shingles were in the 1990s, but I don't think they were all that slippery, and I would have assumed that she would have known this at some point, but she was kind of losing her footing, this is kind of a time where that's not where you want to be. You yep. maybe worry about falling after the guy with the knife. Yeah, it it was a steep steep roof, to be fair. Yeah. Yeah, she gets caught in a vulnerable spot, and the killer throws her off the roof. Luckily, there's a boat beneath yep. her. She's fine. That's very lucky, but yeah, you gotta watch your footing. You gotta be you gotta be a little quicker. I think even Ghostface, they'd have a shot of him looking out the window like, are you serious? Like, there's a boat down... Th- Damn it, I did park the boat there. Uh, that's ha. Stu. Stu's like, shit, I knew I shouldn't have left the boat there. Mom told me to put it away. Why didn't I listen? 
Sydney gets out of the boat. She finds Tatum's body. Hanging from the, the garage, garage door. <laughs> yeah. And then we cut to Randy, who's still in the house, ball by himself, watching Halloween. And this is hilarious. We're going to get super extra meta. We're going to get fourth wall within a fourth wall, 16 walls meta. Because the actor who plays Randy is named Jamie Kennedy. He is speaking to the character from Halloween, Lori, who's played by Jamie Lee Curtis. So he is talking to Jamie. He's like, Jamie, turn around. Look out, Jamie. The killer's behind you. Jamie, behind you. So Jamie is talking to Jamie. It's hilarious. Meanwhile, the, the killer's killer, right behind him. The killer's coming up behind Jamie in Halloween. The killer's coming up behind Jamie in Scream. Yep. And what's even better yet is later on we're going to have Kenny saying, Turn around, kid, because he's watching him. Yep. Turn around, kid. Yep. So there's a guy watching a movie, watch, and then there's a guy watching the guy watching a movie, and they're all saying, Turn around, oh my god. And, 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 and the audience were yelling, Turn around. So it's a great, it's a great cinematic moment, but yep. this really all comes down to rule number two. Jamie Lee Curtis, constant vigilance. Uh, Jamie Kennedy, Jamie, constant vigilance. And then Kenny, constant vigilance. Don't get drunk and get watch watch scary movies when you're in a scary movie. Yes. And, and he knew. Yeah, Randy knew. Rule number two, this is a rule violation for Randy, and he gets a very lucky he doesn't get killed here. Yeah, he's violating his own rules. Uh, the killer hears Sydney screaming outside, so he, he goes outside to take care of that and leaves Randy alone. Interesting choice by yep. the killer, by the way. Randy doesn't know what's going on. Sydney does. I think it's the right call. He could have probably just slit Randy's throat real quick, but he's not about that. He wants it to be a little more dramatic. Yeah, Stu's pretty theatrical. Yep. So Sydney's outside. She runs over to Kenny, wakes him up. They see the delayed camera. The killer's right behind Randy. They're yelling at him to turn around. Kenny heroically decides to go help him. Like, he's like, yeah, I'm going to go help the kid. And then he's like, wait a second, there's a delay. And turns back around to look at the camera. There's a delay on it. He turns around again. Killer's there, slits his throat. Rip Kenny. Which, I, I like it. I get it from a cinematic standpoint. But if the killers would have been this efficient with the rest of their victims, there wouldn't have been nearly as many problems because they almost always had the element of surprise yeah uh and, and they were like who the fuck is this guy and you're like i'm just gonna cut his throat get him out of here right this is a red shirt yeah he's like, who's this guy um on kenny's way out the door he does point out like there's a, an exit in the back of the van and like kind of points at it to sydney and then he dies so i like kenny you know he shouldn't have been sleeping on the job constant vigilance if he'd been a little bit more awake and aware he might have remembered that wait there's a delay and not get gotten killed here that's about all we can say for uh, Kenny. It's just rule number two, constant vigilance. Yeah, undo your job, I suppose. He was doing his job right now. He, there's nothing else for him to do. I, I wouldn't even say that. Yeah. So Sydney shuts the door. She does get stabbed here, but she's fine. Uh, she managed to climb out the back of the van. The killer tries to follow her, which was a mistake on the killer's part. Come on, you don't need to be this, this theatrical. But killer's also drunk. Yeah, yeah. Stu's been drinking. That's a good point. I never thought about that. Stu has been drinking. He's drinking on the job. So, yeah, constant vigilance on you. You could have just gone out the massive door that you just crawled inside. Yeah. But again, he's just having a good time. Yeah, but Stu. I'm not saying that that's, you know, an excuse to go on, like, a murderous rampage. Yeah. But he, he's inebriated. He's not thinking clearly. These rules aren't going to be clicking in his head. He's yeah. not going to be thinking things through. And this will come into play later. He's not paying the best attention. Sydney goes to, like, hide in a barn. Dewey and Gail come back. They, they just missed all of this. Dewey goes into the house while Gail goes to the van to call 911. They have a cell phone in the, in the van. Don't split up, gang. Don't split up, gang. Call 911 first and then go into the house. Yeah. And here's another thing. So, so Dewey goes into the house. We have some problems. For more problems for Dewey here. Not only do they split up, gang. Don't do that. Rule 19. Dewey does not wait for backup. Rule 12. Now, to be fair, 
he has personal stakes here. His sister's inside. Sydney, who's one of his sister's best friend, is inside. So I can understand why he doesn't wait for backup, because these are people he has an attachment to. But it's still a technical rule violation. Right. And that's a good point as well, because he is an officer. Maybe he is the backup. Maybe the way he perceives it is this is his job. Yep. It's an odd time to choose to do your job, Dewey, but I mean, at least, you know, I'm actually going to say, okay, fine, go into the house. He didn't do it in a very intelligent manner. Yep. Certainly wasn't, I mean, checking corners or doing anything like that. Well, at first he was. Like, he goes in the house initially, and we see him checking corners like crazy, and then we don't see him again for a while. Yeah. And then when we do see him again, he's got a knife in his back, so clearly he wasn't paying enough attention. Yeah. Yeah. Don't know how it happened. We don't, we don't get any info on exactly how it happened. But I think standard police procedure would say, no, you wait for backup. You don't go into the house by yourself. At least have a partner. Going in by yourself is a bad call, and, and most police would say, don't do that. You're putting your life in danger by doing that. I feel like it would actually be at your own risk. I I don't I don't want to talk to standard police procedure. Sure. But I I'm not going to I'm not going to fault him. I think that he believes he is the backup, but he does know that almost everyone has left the party at this point. Yep, but his sister yep, yep. as far as he knows is in the house. I get it. Right. I would do the same thing if I was Dewey. Right. So I it's technically a rule violation, but I'm going to not kill him there's plenty of other things to kill dewey about yes this is the least of his problems he's broken enough rules i'm actually not going to hurt him too badly for actually deciding to try to do his job now for once. not much else to say there uh so gail can't find kenny notices the blood realizes that's not a good sign so she gets in the van she tries to call 911 randy startles her and showing up at her door and so she just beats the crap out of him with a phone good reflexes yeah and great move yeah good move use what you have i would assume that broke the phone I mean, I suppose it could have. I didn't even honestly think about it. I was too busy enjoying the fact that she didn't know who the killer was, and she beat Randy Meeks in the face. Yep. That was great. Loved it. She notices there's blood on the windshield. She tries to drive it. Kenny's body falls onto the windshield, (laughs) and she starts driving like a... She panics here, so this is definitely a rule 10. Don't panic. She panics, drives like a maniac, throws Kenny's body off, almost runs over Sydney, crashes the van into a tree, and gets knocked out. And presumed dead. Presumed dead, breaks her van, rule 10, don't panic. By the way, Sydney running out in front of a moving car when you're not in immediate danger, not, not a great. good plan. Not, not a great call. Uh, Sydney goes back to the house to look for Dewey, and he exits the house with a knife in his back, so rule number two for Dewey, constant vigilance. The killer appears, Sydney locks herself in Dewey's Jeep. Killer's got the keys. That's great a, scene. That's great. It's, it's unfortunate. Sydney, a little bit of lack of constant vigilance here. She doesn't keep an eye on the trunk. But she's trying to keep all the doors locked as he's coming around and unlocking them. This really high stakes whack-a-mole. Yeah. Very. And he opens the trunk and crawls in the back. Sydney does find the radio and tries to call for help. I don't think she gets through. But yeah, rule number two, constant vigilance, Sydney. The killer attacks her. She manages to escape, but that could have easily been the end of her there. So Sydney runs towards the house. The killer vanishes again. Now, I love this. She locks and loads. She grabs Dewey's gun. Rule number five, lock and load. So she's got a gun. Randy and Stu both appear. They're blaming each other, saying the other one's the killer. And Sid locks both of them out. Fuck you guys. Fuck you both. Lock store. You know what? That's the move. Trust no one. Yeah. You, you can't trust either of them at this point. You have no idea who the killer is. Your number one suspect, Billy, is now dead, allegedly. Could be either one of them. Could be both of them, for all you know. They could be just both be messing with you. Lock them out. Yep. You can't. You gotta save yourself here. Yep. Love it. This is great. Inside, Billy appears. He's still alive. He falls down the stairs, <laughs> super wounded. 
And he's like, it's okay. Give me the gun. Give me the gun. And Sydney gives up the gun to Billy. This is kind of a rule number seven. Don't leave your weapon behind. Don't give your weapon to somebody else. There's exceptions to this rule. Like if you have a gun, but you're with someone who is better with guns. Yeah, you might give over your gun to them. But this is the wrong call for Sydney. Yeah. And like you said, that can be very situational. But what's really happening is she's relinquishing control, her destiny, her fate to someone else. Yeah. Someone who is somehow alive and okay despite blood, 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 all over his shirt. I get it. You lock the door. But why would you still think that you're safe? I I keep the gun. I keep the gun. Just be like, no, it's okay. You're wounded. You can't use the gun. Yeah. Something. I get it, I get it, because she thinks, oh, he's obviously not the killer because he's seriously injured, but keep the gun. Uh, So Billy opens the door and lets Randy into the house. Stu has disappeared, and Billy shoots Randy immediately. And this is a mistake on Billy's part. He really should have double-tapped on Randy because Randy survives. Mm -hmm. So this is a a violation. Rule number six for Billy, double-tap. Billy reveals he's the killer. He faked the attack. It's all corn syrup. And Stu appears, he reveals he's also the killer. And they, they were using voice changers, they, they frame Cotton Weary, and then, you know, they're terrorizing Sydney a bit, and they reveal Billy's motive was that his father was sleeping with Sydney's mother, and his mother found out, and that's why his parents got divorced, and she left. This is after going on this two-minute monologue about how it's way more ter- terrifying if there's no motive. Yep. Taking Randy's words right out of his mouth, it was fantastic, the little nod, because they actually talk about how... Scary movies don't make murderers. It just makes them more creative. Yeah, yeah. don't blame the movies. Movies don't create psychos. Movies make psychos more creative. Yes. And I think that's Wes Craven's thoughts on, you know, a lot of people will say, oh, this played these violent video games, watch these violent movies, and that's what made these people snap and go crazy. And Wes is saying, he's like, no, 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 these people were crazy, and they would have found any excuse, any reason, any attachment, and used it as a... A template to go on a killing spree or whatever. So it, it was. It could have been anything. So the movie. He's saying the movies didn't do it. It just gave them a template, which they would have found no matter what. And again, it's a little meta. I happen to agree with this sentiment. I do as well. Because I mean, before video games, before violent video games, before horror movies, horrible things happened that, all the time that humans did to humans. In fact, it was probably worse before video games and movies. Yeah, we've gotten to a point where we can enjoy video games and movies. That means that human societies come quite a long way, but not without speed bumps. We've improved. We're, we're better off. But we digress. This is not a story about human nature entirely. Yes. Oh, and then they also make point like, oh, Sydney, yeah, you had sex. You're no longer a virgin. Guess you gotta die now. And Stu does the thing. I'll be right back. <laughs> and he goes outside and he brings in Sydney's father tied up. Because it is now, after midnight, is the one-year anniversary of Marine Prescott's death, Sydney's mom. What they are planning on doing is they're going to frame Neil for everything, just like they framed Cotton for the other murder. And they're, they plant the voice changer, and they're going to plant the knives on him, and they're going to kill Sydney, and then they're going to stage a suicide for Neil. And they're going to stab themselves to make them look like, oh, yeah, we got cut up a lot, but we lived. Just, we got lucky. And they'll be the sole survivors, so they can plan the sequel. So they start stabbing each other to make it look convincing. This is not the right call. You kill Sydney and Neil first, and then you do the stabbings. And I'm not even really sure how to address this, but Sydney managed to buy herself time by playing their game with yep. them and asking questions, open-ended questions. Why? What's your motive? And 
she could tell they were just itching to explain to someone because they just had each other to talk to. And they're so proud of this thing they've put together. So she's smart. She She gives them an audience. She gives them an audience and she doesn't panic. Nope. She keeps cool head. I mean, granted, you're kind of playing with house money at this point. But whatever buys you another second. Good on you, Sydney. You waited for an opportune moment. We'll get to that. Yep. Because she gets the monologuing. Yeah. Which is brilliant. You know, it's just like syndrome from The Incredibles. You get the monologuing, buys you some time, and allows them to make a mistake. It gives you an opportunity, an opportune moment to make your move. And that's what she does here. Mm -hmm. It's great. And in this case, it's not a mistake that the killers make, but Gail Weathers shows up with Dewey's gun in hand, pointed at Billy, pointed at Stu. Yep, so they've stabbed each other. They're both wounded now. Billy's ready. Okay, let's do this thing. Go get the gun. Gun's missing. They weren't paying attention. Gail crept in, took the gun, but left the safety off. And this would fall under lock and load. Not only do you have to have a weapon, you have to have a usable weapon. She left the safety on. Yeah, yeah, did I say off? Yes. So safety was on. So rule number five, get a lock and load. If you're not familiar with guns, that's going to happen. But yeah, make sure the safety's off when you need it off. And again, in real life, I know we need to set the stage here in cinema. In real life, you are now the monologuer, Gail Weathers. Just shoot him. Just shoot him. Just shoot him. So Billy knocks out Gail. And takes the gun. He's about to kill her. But Stu and Billy screwed up. They made their mistake. They did not pay enough attention to Sydney. Because, by the way, Stu is losing a lot of blood. Yep. And he's already drunk. So yep. he is delirious. Yep. And Billy's the only... I don't want to call him competent because he's a little off his rocker now, yep. too. But he's dealing with Gail. And he's dealing with Gail. Stu was not paying attention. Constant to, vigilance, guys. Yeah, yeah, constant vigilance. They broke rule number two. Who's in the horror movie now? Yep, and that's what's the brilliant part about this, because the roles reverse. Sydney becomes the killer, and Billy and, and Stu are the ones who are in danger. It's brilliant. Because they turn around, and Sydney is gone. She and her dad have disappeared, just like the killer does. And then, the phone rings. Yep. She gets them on the line, she's talking to them. With the voice changer. With the voice changer. She has already called the police, because she's got the phone. So the, so the jig is up. Yep, police are on their way. It's, it's amazing. Stu's talking on the phone to her. Billy's, like, raging out, trying to find her. And then, I love this, because he... The Halloween is still on, and he glances at the TV and sees it's the scene where Michael's breaking into the closet to find Lori. So he opens the closet door. Doesn't see anything, but he gets distracted. He looks back at the movie, and Sydney seizes the opportunity. Because Billy violated rule number two again, constant vigilance, and she stabs him with an umbrella. And, again, 90s umbrellas, they were metal, they were pointy, they were stiff. Good use. And City's dressed as Ghostface. A little unnecessary, but I love it. Yeah, this was poetic justice. There was no need to do this, but I love it. I love it, too. He violated rule number two, constant vigilance, gets himself stabbed, but now Sydney... Makes a mistake. She doesn't grab a weapon. Well, she doesn't double tap. One. Oh, yeah. The, The umbrella is obviously an effective enough weapon here, but... It's not enough. It's not enough. She does not double tap. And then Stu comes in. And Sydney has no weapon. She leaves the weapons. And they fight. Now, to be fair, this is what I was talking about earlier. Rule 20. Sydney fights dirty. And she kicks Stu in the groin. And gets him off her. She bites his hand. All this stuff. And then finally knocks a giant TV on his head. Back in the day when TVs used to be really heavy. Yep. Crushes his head and electrocutes him. It's great. So let's talk about Stu. Stu's dead. So he was the killer for most of this movie, but at the end, he was on the, the, the roles were reversed, and he did not pay attention. Constant vigilance. And 
it's weird. There's this sort of quasi not knowing that he was in a horror movie. Mm-hmm. Because if you're the killer, you don't think about being the prey. Well, and that goes back to rule number four. Don't be a menace. Don't be a menace. Don't go on a killing spree. Yeah. <laughs> hadn't it, even thought of that rule. If Stu and Billy hadn't started murdering people, they'd still be alive. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Rule, I, rule number four. Don't be a menace. I'm going through rules one, two, and three. <laughs> and meanwhile, there's just this obvious rule. Constant vigilance was huge. Huge. That was uh, what ultimately what did him in. Well, rule number seven, don't leave your weapon behind. He left his gun on the table, and that's how this whole thing fell apart for him. Yeah. But ultimately, don't be a menace. Constant vigilance. Don't leave your weapon behind. Stu made a lot of really big mistakes here. Yep. He started monologuing. He needed to get to the point and finish the job, and he could have gotten away with this. Yes. If it weren't for these meddling kids. <laughs> but it, it mostly his own mistakes is why this un- all got unraveled. Oh, Shaggy. Oh, Shaggy. Yep, Shaggy... Great at solving these crimes, not so good at pulling them off. So Randy wakes up, he's still alive, and Sydney and Randy are talking, Billy attacks them, and Gail appears and shoots him, and does not double tap. So they think Billy's dead again, but yep, doesn't double tap. And Randy says this is the part where they come back alive for one final scare. And he does, Billy's still alive, and finally Sydney shoots him in the head. Boom, headshot. Not in my movie. So, Billy, it's basically the same stuff as Stu. He didn't pay attention when he should have. He got distracted. Uh, don't be a menace. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty much the same stuff. It's, he didn't finish the job. He, they were not closers. Great job at doing what they were doing, but they lost themselves until the very end. They did not stick the landing. If you fold in the fourth quarter, doesn't matter what happened the first three. Yep. Uh, and then Neil's alive. So, we have um, Sydney, Randy, Gail, and Neil all still alive. And then finally, it's also revealed Dewey survived. And he, as he's loaded into an ambulance... And Gale delivers a new story on it, and that is the end of Scream. And so we only got one new rule from Scream, and, and honestly, it should have been a rule in Friday the 13th, and that's my bad. But we do have one new rule, rule number 20, fight dirty. And even though there's not a technical rule in there, I do want to take one second to explain maybe how this movie is a little different from the rest. There's a lot of prep time for everyone in this town. It's almost like a subset of rule one, knowing you're in a horror movie. If you have time to think about it, Try and gather information. What kind of horror movie are you in? What potential situations could bring themselves up? So there's no real rule there, but just thinking about the fact that time is your friend and information is your friend. Yeah, this wasn't a one-nighter deal like your Friday the 13th, Texas Chainsaw, Saw, and uh, Halloween. All those, they had very little time to prepare. They mostly just had to react to what was happening. Whereas here, they had a couple of days. This takes place for like three days. And you had time to like really gather yourself, prepare your defenses, yada yada. And that makes the mistakes that these people did make a little bit more damning. But I think generally there was a lot of good moves here. A lot of good, a lot of bad. A lot of bad. And the bad moves are worse because they had so much time to prepare. Yeah, and I'm actually really hung up on this idea of time. Because this movie, it really is all about buying yourself time or mismanagement of time. Or, you know, really just counting down those seconds. Yep. And seconds lasting a while. I don't know if there's a way you can incorporate that into a rule other than just being generally aware of time. Yeah. Yeah, that's something to think about in the future, just knowing how to buy yourself some time. Yeah. I guess I would kind of fall under don't panic, because if you stay calm, you can buy yourself time and make those... You know, it's like with Casey at the beginning. She panicked, didn't answer the questions correctly. She could have made it there if she hadn't, if she'd kept a cool head and bought herself some time. Sure. And... 
like I said, there's no real way to incorporate this into a, a rule from my perspective. But At least not that, yet. Not yet. But that's something you can definitely think about in mm-hmm. your everyday life. There's always a way to give yourself a little bit more in this kind of situations. You, you just got to find it. So one new rule. And now we have the awards. So we have the Randy Meeks Merit Badge. This goes to the person who does the best job at following the rules, surviving the movie. Obviously based off Randy Meeks. And so our four lead characters, well, we'll start with Randy Meeks. Didn't really do a whole lot in this movie. He gave his speech. There are certain rules that one must abide by in order to successfully survive a horror movie. He knew he was in a horror movie, but proceeded to get drunk anyway. Kind of broke his own rules. Yeah, and then he was kind of out of commission for a lot of it. He didn't get that much to do here. And honestly, if the award was not named after Randy Meeks, I don't think we would even be discussing him. No, he didn't do a whole lot wrong. Like, in terms of his mistakes, he made a few, but they weren't anything drastic or bad or anything. And he he at least had a set of rules. Yeah, his biggest mistake was going to the party. Yep, and getting drunk, which we can level that at almost everybody in the film. Yes. So, nothing too egregious here for Randy. Gail Weathers, again, you know, I don't know what she was doing at this party, but she shouldn't have been out flouncing around with Dewey. You could have shot them. If yeah. you'd have tried to shoot them earlier, you'd have known the safety was on and tried to fix that. So there are a couple dramatic moments that led to compounding mistakes with her, but ultimately nothing too big. She ended up not giving up, so you've got that going for you. She did panic and crashed her car. Yes. But again, she didn't get to do a whole lot. She wasn't in the thick of things until the very end. Same with Randy. Mm-hmm. And, and honestly, same with Dewey kind of too, but we're not going to talk about him here. At nope. all. Nope. So that just leaves Sydney, who is 100% winning the Randy Meeks merit badge. And there's no question here. And yeah, she does make a lot of little mistakes throughout the film. We already talked about the fact that she went to the party. We talked about the fact that she went out on the front porch and yep. tried to call this so-called killer's bluff. It, you know, respect, but it was not the right move. Right. Respect cer- the balls, though. It certainly made us like you a yes. lot more. Yeah, very likable. She stepped out in front of a moving car. Never a good move. Not a good call. But she never gave up. She she knew how to set up defenses. She locked her doors like crazy. She was paying attention for the most part. And then at the very end, when it mattered most, she seized the opportunity. She gave them an audience and then seized the opportunity to escape, turn the tables on her, her killers, and stabbed and fought dirty. And again, she didn't double tap, but she finished these guys off. Yeah. And and I actually just remembered her most egregious mistake was giving the weapon up to Billy. But the reason that I'm not going to count that as some kind of contra to the award is this is a really unique circumstance. Sure. If someone fakes their own death in order for them to be able to kill you later... It's elaborate. I can't expect her to know that. No. It, it's It's not the right call to give up the gun, but I understand why. Yeah, so... It it makes enough sense. In retrospect, it's the worst decision, but as you're living up to that moment, it's far from it. Yeah. So Sydney does make some mistakes, but she's better than Alice in Friday the 13th. (laughs) And she won this award, too. And I think she's easily the smartest and best character in this movie. And she's certainly my favorite horror movie character to date. Yeah, she's up there with Nancy as my top two, like, in terms of protagonists. Randy will always be my number one, but... And he's better in Scream 2, I think, in terms of decisions he makes. But we'll have to examine that another time. Yes. So, Sydney wins the Randy Meeks Merit Badge. Randy does not. So, moving on to the Night of the Living Pleb Award, which is based off Barbara from Night of the Living Dead, the most useless movie character of all time. They're coming to get you, Barbara. Stop it! 
You're ignorant. They're coming for you, Barbara. And so this goes to the person, the character who did the worst job at following the rules. And this one's easy. It's Dewey. There's no question. I mean, you can try and make an argument, believe it or not, for Randy, but we already discussed all the things that he did wrong and how they weren't huge mistakes. You could maybe discuss the killers, but they died. And they were doing pretty well in the beginning. Yeah. But Dewey does almost nothing right in the whole movie. He does not have constant vigilance. Ever. He does, he does not do his damn job. He might be the worst cop ever. Oh, Dewey. Yeah, he wasn't paying attention. He got himself stabbed in the back. In the original script, he died. Yeah, he he goes off on this moonlit walk with Gale. Doesn't follow his orders to watch Sydney. He's super incompetent and just terrible. Now, I love you, Dewey. Yeah, Dewey's a nice guy. He's a sweet guy, but not the best cop. Great character. You're not supposed to be a deputy, man. Yeah, uh, this isn't good. So his main thing is he doesn't do his job and he doesn't pay attention. Those are the two big ones for him. Maybe that's why all the cops at the station were laughing at him because he truly was really bad. I love his counterpart in Scary Movie. Have you seen Scary Movie? No. You, you need to watch Scary Movie, especially after you've seen Scream. It's it's mostly a parody of Scream, and I know what you did last summer. And how can you make a parody of Scream when a lot of Scream is being a parody of a horror movie we'll watch scary movie and you'll understand All and right. his counterpart in scary movie is phenomenal his name is doofy and he's the most incompetent cop of all time and it's hilarious <laughs> that's one of my favorite parts of scary movie so easily dewey is the knight of the living pleb but interestingly he is a living pleb he did live yes he survived through no fault of his own <laughs> and yeah he, he didn't do himself any favors the only reason he's alive is because David Arquette was so damn charismatic. Yeah. All right. So that is Scream. So now we move on to The Wheel. And Derek, before we spin The Wheel, you get to reserve a spot, another movie, for, for you to come co-host on. So you already have Halloween 2 and Children of the Corn 5. What is your new reservation? Oh, my gosh. I think I'm going to... You know, Ryan, I'm going to... Pick a movie that's unlike any of them currently on your wheel. I'm not even sure if you've seen this one. The Exorcist. Okay. I, yeah, I have not seen The Exorcist, which is surprising to a lot of people I know. Um, but I, I know that there's nothing truly paranormal yet yep. on your list. Besides Freddy. But that's a different. That's a whole different beast. Th- that's why I said yet-ish. Yeah. Quote, unquote. But... This one's more rooted, I believe, in that supernatural, paranormal realm. Certainly in the horror category, you can't deny that. Yeah, absolutely. But I, I'm curious to see how the rules would stack up in something so out of left field. And I feel like we'll get some new ones with that movie, and some brand new rules. Definitely. Okay, well, uh, that is in the waiting room. So in the meantime, Derek, why don't you go ahead and spin the wheel? So the movies on the board are Scream 2, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, Halloween 2, Child's Play, I Know What You Did Last Summer, Saw 2, Friday the 13th Part 2, and A Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2, Freddy's Revenge. A lot of sequels on there, man. Yep. Wow. Okay. Well, for the first time, not only do we have a sequel, but it's the sequel to the movie we just watched. Next week, we'll be Scream 2. And now, who feels really dumb for not reserving it? <laughs> Six sequels, two originals, but we get our first sequel with Scream 2. I'm excited. I love Scream 2. And I think Josh said he really wanted to do Scream 2. So Josh will be the guest next week. Well, that's it. We're done. You can follow us on Twitter at, at HowToHorror. Uh, go ahead and check that out. And there's a link to uh, the master list of rules on there, and I'll update that soon. Oh, Derek, thank you for being on. Thanks for having me.
this has been the How to Survive a Horror Movie Podcast. Stay safe out there. Uh, uh.